When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. A mid-morning dance with the devil from the farmer of fury. It's more like Boris <laughs> Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio as we wake up to the glorious news that the ludicrously expensive vanity project known as HS2 could be about to hit the buffers. Much to the delight of everyone sensible and much to the horror of all the people who love spending our money. Uh, After all, what's £100 billion of taxpayers' money between friends? After all, uh, it was dreamed up by Lord Adonis and endorsed by George Osborne. It was almost bound to be jinxed. Put Chris Grayling into the mix. And what do you have? Now Dominic uh, Dominic Cummings, the Downing Street High Hardman has described it as a disaster zone. It is surely doomed. It's not going to come back from this. As I said to James Max, if it was a horse, you'd probably shoot it. What better way to start the Boris Johnson era than with the axing of this great white elephant? You know it makes sense. 0344 499 1000. But what happens now to all the people who sold their property to the government, who passed on land uh, that they thought they could occupy for the rest of their lives, people who have had things taken away from them, businesses interrupted, money lost, where does all that go now? And do we have to pay out another six billion on top of the six billion that's already been spent doing absolutely nothing about setting up a new train line? Coming up later, former number 10 communications chief Katie Perrier will join me for a look at the Bojo effect in Europe. After his summit with Angela Merkel yesterday, Boris is off to see French President Emmanuel Macron today, who is apparently going to give him a hard time. It'll be a bit like getting slapped in the face with a cold fish, won't it? I don't think Emmanuel Macron is going to threaten Boris Johnson with anything. Project No Deal, meanwhile, can continues to run on rails, 0344 499 1000. Also on the show this morning, we'll find out how British Airways manages to lose 150,000 bags a year. That is about 3,000 bags a week that just go missing. Where are they all? Where have they gone? If you've ever lost a bag, I want to find out what happened to it. 0344 499 1000. Because we're not here tomorrow, it is time for a special early edition of the Perrier Awards, and it is the return of part-time producer Con. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. We've also, later on in this hour, got Wensley Clarkson coming in, who's a crime writer. He's got a new book out uh, telling the shocking truth about gang wars between Eastern European gangs and British traditional gangs right here, uh, just east of London. So we'll get stuck into that coming up a bit later on. Right now, though, we're going to start with Richard Houghton, who's, of course, spokesman for the HS2 Alliance. Richard, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. Now, there's an awful lot more questions than there are answers at the moment about HS2. I mean, I think you probably share my view that once um, the Prime Minister orders a review uh, with Grant Chaps in charge, who's very loyal to Boris Johnson, you get Dominic Cummings, uh, the man in Downing Street, who seems to be making a lot of decisions on behalf of Boris Johnson, or at least carrying them out for him. He's saying it's a disaster zone. It doesn't look good, does it? No, it, it feels like we're in the last act, don't we, of this one drawn out play. Um, although it's not smooth running, I don't think, because if I look at the committee members, uh, there's five pro, two neutral and one against. Right. It'll be interesting to see. Having said that, the Prime Minister doesn't have to accept their um, findings anyway, so yes. he'll probably cancel it if he chose to. I mean, I mean if... the thing that... Sorry, go on. No, the thing that really jumps out to me is, you know, you could spend $25 billion of the $100 billion fixing the north, east to west um, train lines and making sure they work properly so that the, the north gets a fair dose of the spend. God, you could spend, you know, another... Um, 30 billion on the NHS if you wanted to. 
you'd still have 40 billion left over. Yeah, exactly uh, right. So I, I mean, that's the thing. But my worry about the, the sort of the closing down, if you like, of anything like these kinds of projects, it yeah. costs almost as much. I mean, they've already spent 6 billion. I'm not quite sure what on. But what we learned yeah. this morning is that something like more than 318 members of staff at the company are paid at least £100,000 a year, and possibly more than that, which is an extraordinary number of people for something that isn't actually even doing anything. Well, I think the problem at the moment is they're in the kind of... They're having to redo the plans. They need a lot of people to get on the ground and redo the plans because when it was first done, it was rushed through and they didn't actually get on the ground, which right. is part of the problem. Secondly, they can't really attract quality people. They've had a 50% staff turnover in the last 12 months. So they're renewing... They're having to bring people in. And of course, if you've got a project nobody wants to work on, you have to pay extra money, don't you, to attract people. Um, and thirdly... Well, I mean, or alternatively, you just get a lot of people saying they don't really want to work there, so they get offered more money and then they go and well, do that. I mean, that's only in the private in the public sector does that happen. I mean, in the private sector, <laughs> somebody says, no, I'm sorry, it's not enough money. You go to the guy that's within the budget, don't you? Well, of course you do, but also that if there's nobody... You know, this, this project has been a disaster from the beginning. So, you know, from what we've heard, the good quality people in the transport sector don't want to be have, don't want on the CV, so they're not going there. Yeah. Um, or they're arriving, they're realising what a disaster it is, and they're leaving. I mean, if you get, give you an idea of how the money's been spent, I mean, Lord Barclay stood up in uh, the House of Lords in July and said they'd spent two million quid on illegal redundancies, which were actually payments to whistleblowers to stop them talking. Right. I mean, that, that gives you an idea of how out of hand the people's side is. Um, so it's, it's a fundamental problem. But ultimately, it comes down to the fact that Lord of Davis didn't do the tr tr job properly at the beginning. I mean, they were literally doing it on Google Maps with interns yeah. at the beginning. I mean, it's laughable. I mean, that, that's the problem. Well, that is the problem. And they've spent 600 million supposedly purchasing various homes and yeah. pieces of land along the proposed route. So what yep. are they going to do about that? Because they now own a load of houses, which apparently are going to be demolished. I mean, would you carry on with demolishing them or would you put well, people um, back it, into them? I mean, I think at the moment, nobody will want to go back into them. I think once you've kind of been taken out of your home and you've mentally got over the fact that you've had to leave, I don't think you want to go back, are you? I think it's probably been spoiled. Um, I mean, a lot of them are empty, unfortunately. They bought the wrong ones. There's one over in Buckinghamshire, and they bought a Tudor Manor for four and a half million, and then they realised that it wasn't going to go impact. I remember so that story, yeah. We've talked about that before, haven't we? Um, yeah, I mean, John Bishop's ex-house, they paid six million for that. That's on the market for rent at 10k a month at the moment. That's right. empty. Um, and there's a whole load of them. So I think probably what will happen is um, they'll sell off as much of the land as they can to developers, uh, which is part of their business plan anyway. That's how they recoup some of the money. So right. they buy too much land, then they sell it to developers. I mean, you know, without wanting to point fingers, there's a lot of landowners along the route who suddenly had agricultural land and became development land yes. because of HS2. So they were quite keen on it. Um, but I think what will happen is, in theory, some of the land is on loan for the roads they're building to access the building. Right build the train so that should go back but you know if you go to the children's you can see they're building two miles of road for every mile of track i mean i don't know quite know how you put their out of well i love the fact that they better. also they use this kind of project as another yet another reason why we are going green in this country when yeah. in fact as i was watching <laughs> on the news last night a couple of uh, people in some village or other somewhere along the line i can't exactly remember where it was well it looks like a quarry what they've done. Oh, I mean, it just looks yeah. horrendous. And the amount of what you might call emissions going up into the atmosphere must be uh, about a, a million times what they were before any of this started. Oh, my God. I mean, it's absolutely not green. I mean, this is hysterical. I mean, you know, it's not carbon neutral. I mean, it'll take 100-odd years to run it to get to carbon yeah. neutral. Um, they're going to pour enough concrete to cover Greater Manchester while they build it. <laughs> uh, and, and I mean, I shouldn't be laughing, but it's so ridiculously it, inefficient. It's unbelievably bad. Also, it completely solves the wrong problem you know we've got a six percent growth in commuter traffic zero intercity growth in train journeys i mean that's where you need to put the money so i say take take 30 billion of the money you want to spend on hs2 put it into the northeast northwest and north region of the uk start mm. to build some proper trains across the pennines and let's start building that region let's not pretend that sucking it all to london is a good idea let me just give you a couple of figures mike from their own business case right this yeah. is what they put to the government right so they're saying 73% of the jobs for the London to business, Birmingham line would be in London. So that's what HS2 is going to create. 55% um, of the benefits that HS2 is going to deliver is going to be the increased speed, right? Yeah. That assumes that nobody works on trains at the moment. Now, I don't know if you've been on the train recently, but... I, try and, I must admit, I try and avoid <laughs> it. I mean, apart from what I use in internal London you yeah. know, TFL, like tubes and buses and stuff, I gave up using the trains long ago because they were so unreliable and slow uh, that, yeah. and that I just didn't bother. Well, if you're lucky enough to, 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 to use the Marylebone to Birmingham State train, which is you know one of the ones that HS2 are competing with, yeah. get free Wi-Fi, they'll give a cup of coffee, um, it takes you an hour and 25, hour and a half. It's very civilised. It's very reliable. 
But, you know, if, if I tell you, you know, people work on trains every day, so that's a nonsense. But my favourite bit about all this is to get the numbers to add up, they started off with a national average salary of these people who are saving time, which is 28 grand. To get the numbers to add up, they had to increase it to 70K. So they're assuming that everybody on this train is earning 70K a year. Um, that's 1,200 people every three minutes. I think it's unlikely. Yes, I um, do. So, you know, when you look at it, it's laughable. It just doesn't stack up. And this, remember, was when it was going to cost $56 billion, And the chairman came out last month and said it's going to cost $100 billion, as you said at the beginning. So it really doesn't stack up, unfortunately. Um, not to mention, a couple of little details I don't seem to mention. It used to connect to Heathrow in the original plan. That's gone. It doesn't connect to the Eurostar now. That's gone. So you have to walk down Euston Road with your suitcases. I mean, it's hardly integrated uh, transport, you know. It, well, it's it not. Really is and also, I mean, when, when I first heard, and I've been banging on about this for ages, that it was going to come into Old Oak Common, which for those <laughs> people who don't know London very well is west of London. It's out near Wormwood Scrubs uh, Prison. I mean, you might as well have it coming into Reading. You know, you can yeah. get from Reading to Paddington in 15 minutes, but from Old Oak Common, it will take you at least 20 minutes to get in uh, because it's not a fast track. No, and there's no tube lines there. No. There's no major connections out there. So the 20 no. minutes that you've saved by paying presumably through the nose to go faster uh, will immediately be um, uh, neutralised, in the words of the Carbon um, Brigade, because, in fact, uh, you'll have used up the money, the, the time to get into central London. Well, if you can get a train, absolutely. And let's not, remember, let's not forget again that this is a return, so it actually costs, it returns more than it costs to build. They've assumed that um, they're going to be able to charge the same amount as you do for a normal ticket on yeah. a normal train line, which is laughable. Again, every high-speed train, including HS1 to the coast in Kent, charges 20% more. So the whole thing won't stack up. Even if we did build the damn thing, it would cost us probably the same amount of money that we're spending on subsidising railways, which is 6 billion quid a year, just to keep this going. And nobody seems to have mentioned electricity yet. <laughs> you know, we don't we don't have enough capacity in the UK to keep the lights on at the moment. So you know the likelihood of sticking on this and then running that. I mean, who's going? Where's the electricity coming from? I know. You know that, Incredible. That hasn't been worked but out. are you surprised, Richard, as well at the way that, like many things in this country now, the kind of uh, the people line up on either side of the argument depending upon their politics? You know, like all the people that I've got into rows with on Twitter, who are the kind of train maniacs. Uh, yeah. who all want HS2. One of them even said to me once, "It doesn't matter how much it costs; it must be done." And I said, that's absolutely the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. You know, but basically they all tend to be people who are pro uh, staying inside the European Union. They're pro, um, you know, the green economy and they're also pro HS2. What has gone on with our country? Why have people become such sort of Daleks about what? individual kind of um, decisions and projects? Well, I think HS2, well, yeah, I don't know, to be honest with you, about what the broader things. I mean, HS2, it's just a grand projet, isn't it? All the politicians got very excited because yeah. that's lots of ribbons to cut and it's going to be really, it's going to be the fastest in the world. Well, you know, that's all very well and good if you're in China and you've got large expanses of land to get across. I don't think they've moved Leeds or Sheffield North, so it's still not very far away. No. Um, so all of that. But on the politics side, I think the, well, the whole political debate's got more polarised, hasn't it? Yeah. And I think the trouble with HS2 is people think if they lose that, they'll lose the investment in trains. And there are a lot of very train-obsessive people. Do you remember, only 2% of UK journeys are done on trains. Yeah. It's a tiny proportion of people use them. Um, but they get very, very excited about them. And I think it fits into that whole thing about public infrastructure is the future. Sorry, we'll solve all our economic problems. Yeah. And, of course, it doesn't. It, it, it well, it won't solve doesn't. any economic problems if they spend this much public money on something which is actually hardly going to move the dial on anything. Well, you know, one well, of the arguments nothing. we hear is that it's going to make it much more easy to travel on the regular train because it's going to be less busy. Well, I don't really see that, to be honest. Well, no, I mean, they're arguing about capacity, and, you, and you've got to be a technical expert on that, to be honest with you. But, you know, the former MD of British Rail said it won't be... The mayor's advisor on transport, Christian Wilmer, said it won't increase capacity. A lot of short of it is, you know, there are lots better ways of increasing capacity. I can tell you how you can do that straight off. You can stop some of the first-class carriages on the existing lines yeah. in the busy times so people don't have to queue up. Um, you can increase the number of trains running using different technologies around braking, etc. This has all been laid out to the government. But it isn't exciting, isn't it? Politically, I can't get a big red ribbon to cut. I can't say we've got the fastest train in the world. I can't go to the G8 and boast about it. It doesn't work. Um, so it doesn't really fit the politician's mode, does it? It really um, doesn't, and, no. And therefore it doesn't work. But it's not green. It isn't affordable. It isn't going to make a profit in any straight formal way. And it isn't going to help the points where we've got the major problems, which is commuters. Um, and it is destroying because they had to have the fastest one 
you know, it is destroying from London to George Osborne's former constituency. It's a straight line. And then there's a big loop around the richest parts of his constituency, which yeah. costs the government another 500 million. Um, and then it ploughs on. But yes, it's going through an over outstanding natural beauty, the Chilterns, which was protected since 1964. Yes, it's going through a dozen, sorry, two dozen sites of scientific interest. It goes on, you know, it's taking out lakes, it's taking out villages. That's only because it has to be the fastest in the world. Yes. Well, why can't and by it, the why way, I'm sure I don't need to remind you, Richard, this has been a project already for 10 years. And the oh, other yeah. thing that drives me insane about it is that if it was to go ahead, it wouldn't be ready for another 10 years. So, well, you know, you're talking about a project that takes 20 years, costs £100 billion, uh, just so that you can get to London in exactly the same time from Birmingham <laughs> as you can now. Yeah, well, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, and imagine if you took a fraction of that money and put in um, fibre to every home and business in the UK, which yeah. you could afford to do. It costs billions of pounds, but right. it's too expensive. Imagine you put fibre in. I mean, you've got to remember the number of intercity train drivers is dropping because people don't travel in the same way as it is. No, it's ridiculous. And, and as ever with this... The governments, they don't listen to themselves. So they have a department that looks at major infrastructure projects, right? And it does an annual review of all the major infrastructure projects. For the last six years, it's given HS2 amber red, which means it's unlikely to be successful, right? right? They don't listen to that. But no changes have been made because of that. They just ignore it, you know. I mean, that's a bit I really don't understand. They run a whole department objectively reviewing their own infrastructure projects. It says it's not going to work, and they go, no, no, it will, we'll carry on. OK, it's going to cost another $30 billion, but it'll be fine. Well, no. All the evidence is it simply won't work. Um, and it's already running three years behind. So, yes, um, imagine where we're going to be in another 10 years in terms of technology and business. Yeah model, you know, how we're going to be doing. I mean, you know, I don't do as many journeys as I used to to face-to-face meetings, because a lot of it I do on video and um, email. And, uh, no, I still, some meetings you have to do face-to-face, but I don't have to spend $100 billion to get that. No, exactly you know, right. I, that's I, exa- I can, that's exactly the point. It is a vanity project, as I said at the start of the show, and I think it will remain a vanity project. Richard, thanks very much indeed. Richard Housen there, spokesman for the HS2 Alliance. It's actually laughable uh, if it wasn't so tragic, and it wasn't costing us all quite as much money as it is. It would be completely and utterly ridiculous the way uh, that this whole argument and this whole project has been hijacked, basically, by people who absolutely think we must have HS2, we must have a fast train, we must spend all this money. It means that we are a forward-looking country. It's absolute and utter nonsense. I want to hear from you on this, please. 0344 499 1000. The story broke yesterday on our show uh, that this review was going to be done by Grant Shapps. Now that we know more about what exactly is going on behind the scenes at Downing Street, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm quite happy to make a prediction... HS2 is done and dusted. This is Talk Radio. More blasted rhetoric from the Banana Republic for people who think capital punishment isn't going nearly far <laughs> enough. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You know what to do. 0344 499 1000. Loads of you want to get on and talk about HS2, uh, which, as I said earlier, I think is about as dead as a dodo can be. Uh, also coming up, we're going to be talking to Katie Perrier in the next hour, former communications chief at number 10. She'll tell us how she thinks Bojo has been getting on uh, over in Europe. Why he's going to see Emmanuel Macron is anybody's guess. But I'm delighted to say that right now uh, we're going to talk about crime. I'm joined by Wensley Clarkson, who's got a new book out called The Crossing. Wensley, I think it's right to say that you are the sort of crime writer extraordinaire now. You've published, what, 25, 30 books about crime over the years? Even more, but I dare not say You dare, dare not speak its name. <laughs> well, you're looking very well on it. And, of Thank course, you. Uh, you, I can also, I think, reveal that you are certainly one of the uh, former old stages of Fleet Street when Fleet Street was a thing. Um, yes. And uh, there's probably quite a few tales in that, in that particular uh, bar- barrel as well. Yeah, there were. I mean, I wrote a book years ago about it all called Dog Eat Dog, right. which uh, sort of gave away all the tricks of the trade. Oh, OK, well, if anybody... Because a lot of people are interested in all that stuff, and so if you fancy looking back for it, go and find Dog Eat Dog. But let's talk about The Crossing. It says the shocking story, the shocking truth, rather, about gang wars in Brexit Britain. Um, fascinating that, you know, Brexit and crime can be put into the same sentence. Tell us how. Well, yeah, there's a great irony here. Um, I've dealt with a lot of British criminals down the years, some of whom are getting on a bit. Most of them uh, have voted for leaving uh, Europe. Right. 
uh, in the referendum under the illusion that this would mean all the foreign criminals who I've exposed in my book would suddenly disappear and go back to their homes, but they ain't going nowhere. No. I mean, the old stories like the Italian job of, of the kind of the links between some of the, the, the British gangsters and the Italian gangsters and, you know, the ice cream parlours and all of that and the ice cream wars in Glasgow, for example. I mean, that's all a thing of the past now, is it? It's totally a thing of the past. In fact, the only role that British gangsters have within the new underworld, as revealed in my book, which is pre predominantly Eastern European yeah. and even more so predominantly Albanian, uh, they sometimes work as runners. British right. gangsters now are so desperate they'll actually work as runners mm. for these Eastern European gangs. That says it all. And the Albanian uh, side of things, uh, as far as I, uh, I'm understanding it, they basically are running all of the cocaine into this country, uh, trafficking it, bringing it in by the boatload practically and distributing it as well. Absolutely, they're doing everything. They've made contact with the Colombians and other South American uh, cocaine producers. They've set up all these deals. They are the kings of the whole of the UK when it comes to cocaine, yeah. apart from in Liverpool. Is Liverpool right? is still feared by other gangsters so much that they won't enter the city. Is that right? Yeah. So Liverpool remains a sort of you know British holdout, does it? Correct. It's, it's extraordinary, actually, yeah. but it is true. That is interesting. And why Albania, do you think? And why did the Albanians suddenly get such a foothold into this business? There's two reasons. They're very close to the Italian mafia. Mm. And in fact, the only country that the Italian mafia, or three different mafias in Italy, have joined forces with is the Albanian mafia. Right. That shows you how... Uh, powerful the Albanians are and how effective and to be quite frank how deadly they are yes uh, they deal with crime as a business properly unlike the old school British criminals who themselves would take half the product uh, and get off their heads and so on and cause chaos but they were they're pussies teddy bears compared to the Albanians and most other Eastern European and they names. do yeah they do seem to be incredibly sort of um you know, just carefree about the way that they operate in the sense that they just carry automatic weapons around with them in cars. I mean, I've heard terrible stories of, of, of just Albanian street gang fights going on where they're basically shooting each other. There's another really chilling spin-off to this, and that is the knife crime epidemic. Yeah. Because a lot of the kids who get involved in the knife crime are working as minor street dealers on behalf of and for the Albanians and other Eastern right. European gangs. So they're pulling the strings, effectively. They are pulling the strings, and these kids are terrified mm. of losing their territory. They know they'll be attacked not only by other gangsters who are in opposition to them, but also their gangster bosses. Yeah. So this pressure is, I believe, playing a very big role in the knife crime epidemic. And is it the same in other countries in Europe? I mean, have the Albanians sort of taken over the drug rackets there as well? Certain other countries, uh, certainly in fr uh, France, Spain particularly, the Albanians are, are running things, uh, and and to a certain degree in Greece. Yeah. Uh, so yes, the answer is they're 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 doing incredibly well by their t in their terms uh, and and of course they don't care about collateral collateral damage no. uh that it re they really don't every time they kill someone it's good public relations for them because it it puts fear into all their enemies and their friends yes absolutely and post kind of the bosnian war i remember there was an awful lot of an influx of of, form of people from the former yugoslavia who had all fought in the war who were effectively now kind of trained killers and weren't worried about doing it is there still much of an influence from those guys yes there is a huge influence on those guys and of course uh, a lot of the Albanians uh, pretend to be Serbs and yeah. so on uh, this confuses the issue when uh, communism came down this is an important point I think that their discipline comes from having been a communist country right. and I feel the same with most of the Eastern European countries whose criminals are Riding roughshod across yeah. Europe and particularly in Britain. So our criminals have sort of become soft, in other words. They've been pushed into the sea, yeah. metaphorically speaking, and most of them, if they had any sense, would retire and go away. Uh, a few of them now work as runners right. for the Albanian gangs. But the British criminal, as we know it, especially in Kent and Essex and all these old traditional criminal badlands, mm. they no longer exist. It's funny because the crossing obviously refers to the Dartford crossing, which is the Queen Elizabeth Bridge that's on the front cover that's of the right. book. Um, is that a sort of significant... Um, in, um, a sort of piece of architecture, or is it? Is it just a sort it's of? It's a, a transport hub in yeah. a sense because they can get into Essex and North London 
quickly when they come off the ferry because yeah. of that crossing. Right. And it's the same when they want to get out. And remember, most of these gangsters are wandering around committing crimes, not even using their real identity. Mm. And this is why the police just are struggling so yeah. much. You do see, I mean, I drive up and down that part of uh, the world quite a lot uh, on my way down to Sussex and stuff. Um, and you do see an awful lot of foreign registered cars, and many of them from Romania. Uh, many of them from Poland, quite a few trucks from there as well. I mean, I'm not going to suggest, obviously, that they're, they're clearly, you know, they're here, here for some reason illegally, but, but there's a lot more of it than there used to be. There are, and in my book I even expose the use of shipping containers yeah. as uh, places to run criminal enterprises. There's even one shipping container where foreign gangsters, Eastern European gangsters, can drive in, get their um, number plates switched right. so that any monitoring that might have occurred when they went through the crossing will not mean anything when they come out the other side. Right. And I can tell you just from my personal experience, my car um, had, had something something happened to it. It had to be taken away to be fixed. And the people who towed it away, I couldn't find the car for like two days. For some reason, couldn't deliver it to the garage they wanted to deliver it to. They left it in a lay-by somewhere near Blue Water, right, where it sat for 24 hours and nobody said anything. Nobody but bothered to call anyone nobody said there's this car been abandoned so i mean if you're a foreign, a foreign criminal and you want to switch plates or you want to switch um lorry loads of stuff clearly there's nobody out there looking for you yes it's so easy and as i have said nobody knows who they really are right. and that's the, the biggest problem the police face and what about the human trafficking side of things as well because there are those who say that's even more profitable now than the drug side I don't think it is, but it's still a major part of their operation. But drugs is the primary business. Uh, people smuggling is yeah, building, but it's not actually that big a business in reality. Um, but then they're doing protection rackets. They're mm. doing all sorts of things where they've stepped in. They, they've literally replaced the old English old-school English criminal habits, um, and it's become... A, they're, they're a massive corporation in yeah. criminal terms. And it says in one of the papers this morning, there's a story about how the Home Office has lost track or hasn't counted something like 240,000 um, European migrants from the European Union. You'd have to imagine some of them maybe from the criminal fraternity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in fairness, I don't want to paint this picture of all Albanians or all Eastern Europeans being criminals. That right. would be grossly unfair. Right. However, at the moment, the Albanians in particular are running things and they, and I would say there are thousands of them here committing crimes. Right. Uh, and that is a, a major thing that's going on and it's changed the face of crime and one of the things, and without wishing to get too uh, stuck into Brexit, one of the things that we keep being warned about by the Remainers is, of course, when we lose our c contact with Europe, we'll lose the Europol kind of con intelligence units. We'll lose, you know, this is all happening while we've got all that. Yes, so, you know, exactly. it's how, not much much worse, difference. how much worse can it get? Yeah, but I just, as I said earlier, beware because these criminals are not going to disappear because of Brexit, whatever happens. Right. They're going to carry on because this is their El Dorado. This is the richest country still of all, and there are so many opportunities yeah. for criminals. Well, isn't it funny that, you know, the criminal fraternity don't seem to be worried at all about Brexit. It's just the people who do legitimate business who are dead scared that they won't be able to get a lorry across the channel. If you can still get the coke and the people in, why can't you get the cheese? Well, yeah, you've said that. You know what I mean? <laughs> it says it all. It really does. <laughs> it does. Wednesday, this book is available now, is it? Yes, it is. Today. It's out today. Today, The Crossing by Wensley Clarkson, The Old Firms versus The New Kids on the Block. Well, good luck with it. I'm sure you've got about another two or three books on the go, so uh, <laughs> yes. we'll see you when they're coming out soon. Many thanks. Wensley Clarkson, thanks very much indeed. This is Talk Radio. We've got loads more coming up. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. More gun talk from a water pistol from the farmer of fury. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. It is Thursday and it's the last uh, show of the week for me because I'm not here tomorrow. Not that I should put you off in any way listening to Talk Radio because Alison Stewart will be here uh, sitting in for me. We are going to do the Perrier Awards today, though, uh, instead of uh, on Friday because, of course, uh, I like to win all of those, so he can't have any. 0344 is the number. We're going to go live now, though, to London Zoo because uh, Talk Radio's very own Emily Rose Adams is over there uh, witnessing what can only be described as a weigh-in. Uh, Emily, a very good uh, morning to you. Welcome to the show. What can you uh, what can you tell us about what you're seeing? Oh hi, Mike. Yes, I've got to thank you for letting me out of the office this morning because I've been having a whale of a time down here. Very good. I like <laughs> to see what you did there. It's nice weather as well for a little trip to the zoo, isn't it? It's absolutely beautiful today. It's been lovely. So yeah, it's the annual weigh-in day at London Zoo, where basically the team have to weigh as many different animals as possible, and they put all of the weights onto a massive computer system, which is actually shared worldwide. Uh, they can compare with other other animals in captivity and um, even with animals in the wild as well. So I've just been um, chatting to Tyg Stubbington, who's the assistant curator of mammals here, and he said the reason it's really important to do this is because by checking the weights, it's a great indication to see how healthy they are and maybe to indicate perhaps if they're pregnant, if they haven't already um, realised that. And um, some of the animals that have been weighed so far today have been penguins, lions, the meerkats, which were very cute. Uh, we headed into the reptile section where they actually got out a black-headed python, um, but it was a, a baby one, luckily, okay. so it wasn't did too you, did scary. Did you just and, sort of very casually mention a lion there, by the way? Um, yes, yeah, so they did measure the lions, but only height so far. So what they did was kind of put some food on a stick and they got them to stand up as right. tall as they could. And um, the lion called Heidi uh, was measured at seven foot Six, very cool. Wow. Because, I mean, one of the things that uh, you always think about in these times is sort of the joke, you know, how do you weigh a lion? To which the answer would be very carefully, I would imagine. I mean, do they, yes. are they actually standing on a scale? Um, they are, yes. So they're, it's kind of about getting creative with the animals. Yeah. Um, it's not, they, they kind of, they don't want them to know what's going on, but it's done very sweetly. They're kind of given little treats. Um, and, you know, gently step onto the scales. It does take a while sometimes, though. There, there was a massive bullfrog. I've never seen a, a frog that large in my life. It was absolutely huge and it kept hopping around everywhere. So that one was a bit tricky. <laughs> I bet it was. I mean, it must be incredibly difficult because, I mean, I only can only because I've, I've got a, quite a big dog. And when you take the dog yes. to the vet, you have to weigh the dog and you have to sort of somehow get it up onto this little platform, which is obviously yep. quite big, but, but then get them to stand on it for long enough to actually make it count. So, I mean, to weigh as many animals as their way. I mean, how many animals are they expecting to weigh? I think in total there's around 19,000 here in the zoo. So obviously they can't do it all today. They have been doing it throughout the week. Um, but it's all about getting creative, using distractions. They're using like a target stick with food on it. Um, which I think is, is probably the best way because the animals are loving the treats. So it, it's been a really, really fun experience to encounter this morning. Yeah, I bet. And apparently there's going to be quite a few videos going up on uh, Talk Radio's Twitter, which I imagine you're going to be involved in as well um, a little Absolutely, bit later yes. on. Now, there exactly. are some wags in the office who thought it would be a great wheeze, right, for me to ask you what sort of animal would hit me uh, around about the same weight as me. <laughs> um, now, I'm not I'm far too modest to give away precisely how much I weigh, but what's the heaviest, right. what's the heaviest animal? they've weighed so far 
So, so far, it's been the Akapi, which is apparently the only relative to a giraffe. Okay. Um, <laughs> it looks like a cross between a horse giraffe and a zebra. It's got stripy legs. Very big. And it weighed... 247 kilograms. That happened literally just now. 247 kilograms. I don't think that's as heavy as me, somehow. <laughs> but I'm not sure, because I, really I don't really weigh myself in kilograms. I'll have to work well, it out. It was rather large, so... <laughs> how big was it? Come on, tell us exactly how big it was. It was, it was, it was like a very big horse. A very, a very big, big horse. Very, so you're yes. telling me that I weigh more than a very big horse? <laughs> I mean, I don't want to say that, Mike. No, but... that would be unkind. <laughs> yeah, that isn't... I don't think that is anything like as heavy as I am. Yeah, 38 well, stone. I'm, I'm, my calculations are going all to cock, I think. I'm getting this all wrong. <laughs> anyway, yeah, it sounds like that's a lot heavier than me, the big uh, the, the thing that's a very big horse. So, so it, thank well, you. It was very big. Um, and the smallest thing they weigh, what would that be? Um, well, the, the meerkats were one kilogram. They right. were very cute. Um, also, the, the frog, which I think is quite big for a frog, it was 900 grams. Right, that does sound like a big frog, yeah. Yeah, it really was massive. <laughs> Excellent. Well, listen, enjoy the zoo. Um, uh, check in uh, the old uh, the bat enclosure, which used to be uh, a favourite of my kids when they went there. Emily Rose Adams reporting in live to us from uh, London Zoo, where they do the annual weigh-in. Of course, it's not just about weighing the animals, it's about... Uh, getting publicity for the zoo, showing everybody what it is that they do uh, in terms of looking after creatures and looking after the kind of um, the species in the world which are sometimes uh, needing to be more protected than they are in the wild. Many of you, of course, will say to me, yeah, but zoos are terrible, aren't they? London Zoo actually isn't terrible. London Zoo is a great place to take your kids, a great place to go and visit, uh, and if you happen to be in this part of the world, then uh, you should go. I mentioned to you earlier on uh, in the show that the latest ridiculous sort of carbon offsetting story of the day, because we've been doing this all uh, week, really, because of William and Harry, is that there's an MP's committee which is now basically telling us all that we should be giving up cars altogether. Never mind whether you've got an electric car or not. Basically, you're not going to be looking forward to driving a car in the future because it's not the answer. And in order for us to hit the climate uh, uh, targets that we have set ourselves, we'll all have to start walking everywhere. Let's talk to Edmund King, uh, president of the AA, see what he makes of it all. Edmund, very good morning to you. Hi there, Mike. Now, I mean, I, I don't mind sort of the Extinction Rebellion crowd telling me that I can't go on a plane and I can't get in a car, but when the government starts doing it or when you know, MPs sitting in a very nicely uh, expensed, um, you know, cabinet meeting in uh, inside the House of Commons uh, tell me that cars are going to have to be forgotten about in the future, I start to get a little bit concerned. Yeah, indeed, Mike, and particularly when it's coming from the Science and Technology Committee, yeah. who don't seem to have much faith in science and technology. No, it's extraordinary, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, they it, might as well call it the Stone Age Committee, won't <laughs> they? Exactly. I mean, you know, we all know that we need to clean up vehicle use and loads of things are going on with electric vehicles there's a lot of development also with hydrogen fuel cell vehicles which for heavier goods vehicles could be the solution and if hydrogen's produced in an environmental friendly way the only emissions are water so there's lots that technology can do and it is interesting because they're basically saying technology won't do enough so we've got to ditch our cars now Get out of London, get out to Derby, Doncaster, Darlington, get out to the real world, and people are totally dependent on their cars. Of course, in our towns and cities, there's lots we, we can do with public transport or car sharing or walking and cycling. And, you know, as president of the AA, when I come into London, I, I never drive into London. Right. I use the train, I, I use the bus. But if I'm out in rural Yorkshire, I will use a car because it's the only efficient means of getting around. Yeah, it is. So, well, I was saying so, this to somebody yeah. yesterday, you know, down in Sussex where I go at the weekends, if you miss a bus, the next one isn't coming until yeah. next week. I mean, you know, that's it. You don't, And you have no way of knowing when the next one's coming because they haven't got the technology like we have in London that tells you when the next bus is coming. Yeah, I, I, I think all too often these reports are kind of London-centric and, and we need to get out there. And, you know, there are incentives for the manufacturers. The, the government has already said by 2040 that all new cars should be zero emissions, and that means, you know, electric or hydrogen, etc., this um, committee of MPs somewhat arbitrarily said, why not bring it forward to 2035? You know, it's kind of, well, what, what is that based on? Um, and, you know, we all know things have, have to be done, but the government have got it wrong in the past. There, there, there was the incentivization, the dash for diesel, where there were tax cuts on diesel vehicles. And, you know, and then five or six years later, 
diesel was demonized and we're told to get rid of diesel yeah. and many people had bought diesels in good faith families on low incomes had people carriers that were diesel and they can't just afford to change them overnight you but know, what puzzles me time. as well right and this is all i'm sure more political than it is economic mm. you know because i'm about to get a new car and i'm actually getting it i asked a few people who were in the mm. business and i said is it in madness to get another diesel car because the one that i've had for the last three years has been incredibly clean mm. incredibly good uh, to run very economical quite e uh, environmentally sound as well um, and they all said, yeah, don't worry, they're not going to put any extra taxes on diesel cars, but surely they should be cheaper now if nobody wants them, but they're not. Well, yeah, and again with diesels, you know, a brand new Euro 6 diesel, if, if most of the mileage you do is on motorways and long distance mm. journeys, then a brand new Euro 6 diesel is the cleanest environmental yeah. option. Because, with all that add blue stuff going into it. Yeah, but, but you get more miles per gallon and hence there is less CO2. Yeah. So, so you know, di di diesels aren't all the demons. You can get very good fuel efficient diesels, you know, and likewise, if more of your driving it is in um, urban areas then an electric vehicle or a hybrid vehicle is probably the better choice but so so you've got to adapt the transport to the conditions but these people than, these people mm. in this committee are even saying electric cars however are not the green solution because they've got significant emissions association with their manufacturer well guess what everything's got significant emissions associated with its manufacturer so are we stop are we going to stop making trains are we going to stop making ships yeah. are we going to stop making airplanes well, I, I know, and technology gets better and better. You know, look, look at the batteries on the mobile phone from 10, 15 years ago. They were massive. Mm. Now they're much more slimline, they're more efficient. And it is the same with cars. So techn technology really can be a solution here. Look, if we got a man on the moon more than 50 years ago, surely we can use technology to, to clean up the vehicle fleet. Well, you would think so, wouldn't you? So, I mean, as far as the, uh, the no-car future is concerned, I mean, it's obviously bad news for the AA isn't it? Because you won't, you won't be able to exist anymore. In fact, you'll probably become the sort of enemy of the thought police or something. Well, well exactly. But um, I think we're pretty optimistic that there's still a future for vehicles. I mean, we actually surveyed 20,000 um, people, drivers, recently and said, you know, in the future they might be ride hailing, they might be car sharing, they might be driverless vehicles. But 48% still said they would never contemplate giving up their car, even with all those developments. So I think, you know, the car will remain king for some time to come. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And long may it continue. Thank you very much indeed. I'll just get Elton John to send some money to the old carbon offset company for me every time I get in the car, because he can afford it, right? And that makes it OK. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Loads more coming up, including the Perrier Awards. More blasted rhetoric from the Banana Republic for people who think capital punishment isn't going nearly far <laughs> enough. <laughs> the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. It's 12.33. It's Thursday. It's time for this. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Perrier Awards. Special different music for Thursday, I see. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because, see, a lot of people will be listening now thinking... My God, it must be Friday. I must have overslept. I thought it was Thursday, but it's actually Friday. Don't worry, don't panic. It is not Friday. It is actually Thursday. Yes, that's right. That would be quite the oversleep And Con well. has returned. And yes. So he's here to do the Perry Rewards on a Thursday. Yeah, I'm back. I came in especially. Will you be uh, here tomorrow? Um, I can't make it tomorrow as no. I'm going away. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we just do the Perry's every Thursday then? Uh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. I wasn't in last no, Thursday. not then. getting the thumbs up from Marta behind the screen. No, she's not pleased. No. She, she likes her moment. Indeed. Um, uh, should we begin? Go ahead. Welcome once more to Thank the Perry Awards. This is where we go back over the past week of the so-called Independent Republic of Mike Graham and choose our favourite moments. Yes, it's the special Thursday edition as Mike is once again jet-setting across the globe. But don't worry, I'm very happy to announce that he's agreed to donate a week's wages towards <laughs> carbon offsetting. Yes, I'm going to give it to that nice family that run that multi-million pound carbon offsetting company in Basingstoke. That's very good Yes, because that'll help the planet. And on the back of the tremendous news, let's begin. As is tradition, the first period goes to part-time presenter Mike Graham. Uh, you win the award for <laughs> best summary of the show when talking to parenting expert Sue Atkins. Brand them all as as old misery gutses, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. 
Absolutely. I don't like any of those stereotypes and I don't like generalisations either because... Well, you come to the wrong place then. (laughs) (laughs) It's very true. Yes. Uh, Our next perrier is the award for the unquestionable statement of the week. Mm. And that comes from the unquestionable George Pascoe Watson. If we can't do a deal, we will leave unquestionably on May the, uh, May the 30th. Uh, uh, sorry, October the 30th. <laughs> unquestionably. There, there is a question to yes, be had there. Yes, exactly right. Uh, well done, George. <laughs> um, now, for reasons I won't go into, talk radio has been lacking this week in very long questions being asked. Mm. Uh, fortunately, Andy in Littlehampton was there to pick up the flack. He wins the longest question of the week. Rakid, uh, good morning to you. Morning. Um, Obviously, I, I personally um, support uh, Prissy Patel, the Home Office, uh, stripping Jihadi Jack, Jack Letts, of his um, citizenship. But with at least 320 reported cases of people still waiting in the wings to uh, go back to their various native countries, um, I think probably the way ahead, and I don't know if you'd agree with this or not, the way ahead is we've got to have some sort of international agreement, uh, an international court founded through an international agreement <laughs> to try these cases and dispose of them correctly. Something similar to the Hague, but something which is more bespoke to, you know, uh, because I don't think we've ever had it before mm. where citizens of a country have gone away to fight, essentially, against the country where they're inherent in. That's a very good question, and I'm glad you asked it. Yeah, the answer was... was there actually a question? Yeah, I had no, no idea. The answer was no. Yeah. Uh, By the way, I think you meant picking up the slack rather than picking up the flack, didn't you? Uh, yeah, maybe. I mm. guess both both count. No, they don't. Uh, Matthew Henders, director <laughs> of the Asia Studies Centre at the Henry Jackson Society, was our guest yesterday. Yes. And shock to many, but he won the Love Island Fan of the Week. Did he? Companies who recognise Hong, Hong Kong's potential will not ignore it. Hong Kong is unique. There is absolutely no question about that. It is what it is. It, it is, is what it is. is. Yeah, That's well, what they were saying all summer yeah, I on guess it, I Love guess, Island. I guess there you go. He, I'm not the sort of bloke I would have thought watches Love Island. No, but well, there you maybe, go. Hong Kong is his Love Island, I Made think. Maybe so, uh, look very good. Uh, Malcolm in Oxford won the Perrier for Idiom of the Week. My deal is dead. He did say that. Dead as a duck, dead. <laughs> yeah, dead as a dodo, no. even. Dead as a dodo, <laughs> no. Dead as a duck. <laughs> That was good. Easy mistake to make. It is easy mistake to make, yeah. Uh, um, Now, we all know that the Perry Awards... Yeah, it's all the same. Uh, We all know that the Perry Awards are largely about lifting parts of the show and playing them completely out of context. Quite right. This week's winners of the Out of Context Award are UMG and Head of News, David Spencer. Mm. In my top optimum amount of time is about 20 minutes. After that, I've lost interest. When you, that actually surprises me that you could last that long. Well, that's a prob- I'm probably just exaggerating. <laughs> that. I see what you did there. Thank you. I have no idea what you're talking about. Yes. Um, uh, let's go to Mary in Hemel now, uh, who after earlier uh, uh, earlier in the show, she didn't respond when you threw to her. Oh, yeah. uh, we, you asked um, well, what happened, and she came back with the excuse of the week. Let's talk to Mary in Hemel Hempstead, who I think we've got back. Mary, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mark. I'm sorry about earlier. I had a swallow in my house. You had a swallow? <laughs> what, I mean, an actual bird flying around? I know, it flew in. I think it was on its maiden flight, a young one. Anyway, my grandson managed to open the window to let it out. Oh, <laughs> goodness me. Terrible. Happy ending, though. Well, it was, until she then revealed today... Yes. ...that, well, that actually after that, something else happened. Yeah, she also won the Perrier for the best end to a call. Yeah. Well, I don't know, but to me, that, that's... Horrible, and anyway, listen, I've got to go. I, I've, I'm having a problem here with something else. <laughs> Blimey, maybe you shut the windows, for heaven's sake, Mary. I mean, Mary's being invaded. It's like an episode from The Birds. I think there's some, some, some blackbirds arriving now. Seagulls next. Said that it was a robin. Was that what it was? That's what she said, yeah, today. She, oh. she came on today, she said she had a load of robins. She's worked out that she apparently lives on some migratory path for, for birds that fly south for the summer. How high is her flat? Well, I don't know. She must live top floor. Yeah, could uh, be. In the penthouse. Uh, let's go to motoring journalist Mike Rutherford. He wins the perrier for the question of the week. And if anybody accuses me of having a large carbon footprint, I say to them, whether it's whoever it is, uh, especially I enjoy saying this to an eco-mentalist who points the finger and doesn't look at him or herself. I said, well, you know, where's your private woodland? Yes. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's a great question. Almost as good as that other really long question. <laughs> yeah. Where is your Where is your Where's wood your private, private woodland? woodland? Yeah. Uh, I, I would say Hampstead Heath used to be mine because that's where I used to live. It wasn't private though, was it? Well, I suppose that's true. Uh, good. Um, and uh, and to end, we go over to the Breakfast Show, covered this week by uh, James Max. Oh, yes. uh, Stephen Pound MP was in the studio with him, and he wins a completely different pairia, Query of the Week. On yesterday's programme, we talked about the Swedish comedian Olaf Falafel, who won the funniest joke of the French really place. his name? Uh, <laughs> is, is Falafel a Swedish name? <laughs> yeah. Has he ever been to the Edinburgh <laughs> no, Festival, no. do you think? I don't think no. so. Calling I mean, him out Olaf, a broad, basically. Olaf is definitely a Swedish name. Yeah. Falafel, not so much. No, it's more Greek. Do you um, think maybe he changed his name? Uh, possibly, mm. yeah. I don't think his first name's really Maybe Olaf. Stephen Pound's real name is actually Stephen Euro. <laughs> Sorry. That would be fun. Yeah. Uh, well, good news. That's it for Is the pair awards. Okay. Uh, I would say there'll be more next week, but it's Alistair Stewart and he doesn't make mistakes. No, of so, course he um, doesn't. <laughs> uh, so we'll come back uh, to you uh, when you're back. Well, when, maybe when, when when we come back, you can have compiled a whole list of Alistair Stewart's mistakes and we'll play those out when I'm back in here. Both of them, How yeah. about that? <laughs> sure. Fantastic. Sounds good. Carl, thank you very much indeed. More coming up on Talk Radio. The Perrier Awards on Talk Radio. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.